I want to talk to you today about the three types of people that I think Jesus is directing his sermon to in today's reading. The, the first type of people are those who think that, they're, that the law, no law, applies to them and that they think they can make their own law. These, these types of people are the true offspring of the serpent who beguiled Adam and Eve into eating the forbidden fruit because what happened during that episode, Adam and Eve took the law into their own hands and instead of allowing God to tell them what was good and what was evil, they ate of the tree and decided for themselves what was good and what was evil. Eve says herself, I see that this fruit is good to eat, and she decides that she is the lawgiver. The second are those who acknowledge the law, whether the civil or the divine law, and yet who manage to avoid the major crimes, like eating the fruit they're not supposed to, but who go on to rationalize the minor crimes. I think that's probably the balance of the, of the congregation that heard Jesus' sermon this morning. The, uh, uh, the third group uh, are those who love the whole of God's law, every jot and tittle, and love God and their neighbor perfectly. Uh, there aren't many of them. Uh, but, but they are the true offspring of the woman who was called Eve because, because she was the mother of the living. And I think that's an important distinction to make because the Bible views the first group of people as dead, uh, spiritually dead in this life and dead for all eternity to come. If you take the law into your own hands and you decide you know what is best, then you are spiritually dead. The second group, the vast middle or muddle, we can call them because they're kind of muddling through, simply want to do what is right. And they'll follow any religion or leader who promises to keep them safe and who promises to keep the sheriff away from them. I kind of think of when I do my taxes and I, I do the turbo tax and I get to the end and I'm, I like my, I see my refund and all of that. And then there's this, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm such a sucker for this because they're upselling me to buy the audit protection. And I'm sort of, whatever will keep the IRS away, I will pay money for, right? So that's kind of the vast the vast second group, that muddling group, will we'll do whatever it takes, just, just, keep, just don't, don't look too closely, right? Um, uh, here's what's going on in, in the sermon from, that, that Jesus is preaching today. He's calling people out of the first group and the second group, and he's calling them to be in, in that third group. And it's that third group that the Bible refers to as saints. As I said, we've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount the past couple of weeks. And Jesus is intentional about preaching this sermon from the mount, a mountaintop, because that's where the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Jesus is linking, he's setting himself up as a, as a new Moses. He, he wants that connection to be made in the, in the, in the minds of his hearers. Uh, but he's not giving a new law, and he makes that clear. He's simply recapitulating the, the law of Moses. He's concerned that that law of Moses has been handed over to the regulative and enforcing power of the, of the Judean Herodian state, this sort of puppet government set up by the Romans. And he's worried that the moral order and the spiritual order have been fused with the political order in order to establish uh, outward con con uh, conformity. Uh, the, the law, uh, this would be kind of what we would call law and order, right? So if you vote for the law and order candidate, you're, you're voting for people who will keep the peace, right? But Jesus is saying, that's fine as far as it goes. We don't want you know, lawlessness in the streets, but the law primarily is spiritual. 
And it needs to be applied first and foremost, not to the body by you know, whipping it or throwing it into jail or whatever. It needs to be applied to the, to the, to the heart first. And so Jesus methodically goes through the law and makes the connection, reconnects the law back to the heart, back to the spirit. So for instance, when Jesus says, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment, he is speaking to those who count themselves law-abiding citizens simply because they've managed never to kill anybody in cold blood. Well, you know, good for you. But he then links anger, which is a spiritual matter, a spiritual malady with murder which is a deadly external physical act. He says, but, uh, but I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You belong to the first group, which is to say the spiritually dead group, if you're angry without a cause. You are, you are also spiritually dead if you slander, gossip, libel, or insult, that second group. In short, if you're maybe part of what today is called the cancel culture, you're, 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 guilty, you're guilty of murder. So it's not enough just not to kill somebody in, in cold blood. If you're murdering them with your heart, you're guilty of the law. You're guilty of murder. Now, there's a textual note here that I want to go into, and normally I would avoid that, but, but um, in, in the, the reading we read today omits a key clause in this verse. It reads, if you are angry with a brother or sister, and then there's a footnote, you will be liable to judgment. Now, the footnote says uh, uh, whoever is angry with his brother uh, or sister without a cause, that's the footnote part, without a cause, shall be in danger of judgment. Um, and I want to put that back in because I think it sets up the, the teaching on divorce a little bit later on. Because Jesus is not saying that there's no such thing as good and righteous anger. And if you leave out that without a cause um, uh, uh, clause, you, you get that impression that it's just wrong to be angry. Um, there are reasons and times to be angry. Jesus himself got angry. Uh, David, King David, who, who, to whom the Psalms are attributed, was also angry. He wrote, he wrote, do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? So this, this idea of there should be a cause, this grief for cause uh, that leads to anger is consistent with Jesus' teaching uh, himself. We should, be, we should be upset when God's law is violated as Jesus is upset. And that now sets up, I think, his teaching on marriage because he's saying marriage is a covenant relationship. And it's not to be entered into lightly nor gotten out of easily. So there needs to be something that, there needs to be a reason if, if the covenant is ever going to be broken. Uh, Jesus mentions uh, unchastity. The Greek word is, is pornea, which is a wide-ranging term for any kind of unfaithfulness to the covenant, a sexual being first and foremost, because it so obviously destroys the trust that is required. But Jesus then goes further and says, you know, you're an adulterer uh, even if you look with lust upon a woman. And, and, and if you just give her a bill of divorce, because the way the law worked back in those days is that men could divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever. The dinner was later burned. They, they, could, they could just give her a certificate and, and divorce her. And, and what that did was that removed her from any support system that she had 
And, and, and what other choice did she have but then to go get married again, which, uh, was, which, which Jesus then saying, it's, you've basically prostituted your wife at this point. So he's saying, she hasn't broken the covenant if, if your dinner's late, but there has to be a real reason for the covenant to, to be broken. Um, and then he ties it back to, what's the state of your heart? Have you been physically faithful to your wife? Great, but have you been mentally and spiritually faithful to your wife? Because that's the real spirit of the law. Now, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I feel convicted. And a better word for that might be guilty. I feel some guilt, right? I mean, maybe you feel that way too, because, and, and, because it's a hard sermon to hear, right? He's, he's, it's not enough just to, not, to, to, to have an outward compliance. He wants, Jesus wants our hearts. And there's a couple of reasons, I think, for, for, for this feeling of guilt, one of which is a good reason. Now, um, if you, let's say, had a surgery or, or, or an accident and you woke up in the hospital and you're in the recovery room and the, the doctor or the nurse is poking your toe with a, with a needle or something like that and you say, ow, that's pain, but it's good pain because it means that the nerve endings are all working and that you're not paralyzed, uh, so guilt, I think, is the same kind of thing. If you, if you feel the pangs of conscience, that's, that's, that, that, that means you, uh, your spirit is still uh, alive. You're, you're not morally and spiritually paralyzed. Your conscience still works. You definitely don't belong to that first group of serpents, uh, and you're not mor- morally and spiritually dead. Uh, that's, so that's good. If you're feeling a little bit of guilt, that's good. Um, the second reason the sermon is difficult is because Jesus is calling us out some of us out of that first group, God, thank God, but, but most of us out of that second group and into the first group um, because he doesn't want us to be satisfied with just muddling through. He doesn't want us to just be satisfied with external faithfulness and religion. He wants us to be perfect. He wants our hearts to be changed. He wants them to be pure. Now, that's an impossible move to make on your own. We're not going to get from the first or second group into the third without significant help. And in fact, if we, if we look at it, Christ is really the only person who belongs to that third group. He's, he defines the category. He, he alone deserves to be called blessed and faithful. But this is why we are Christians. We take on a new name. We put on Christ. We bear his name. And so we set aside all of those other names uh, those names to which guilt is attached, including our own name sometimes, right? When we set aside that name and we take on Christ's name, we set aside the guilt as well, and that's good news. So we're called to put on Christ. And there's three stages to putting on Christ. The first is conversion. Uh, conversion happens when we're finally sick and tired. Decide that we're finally sick and tired of living our lives in either the first or the second group. We're tired of the serpents and sinners because we're always getting bitten by them. Uh, We're tired of the pretense of living in the second group, of convincing ourselves and the world around us that we're muddling through, that we're doing fine, that we are in fact making it. It's exhausting to live like that. So that's conversion. Another word for it is repentance, which is to basically stop walking the wrong way and to turn around and walk the right way, walk to a better place. So uh, uh, this is a choice we all have to make, and we have to make it again and again in our lives because it's not just a single choice. We We have to make this decision every day, several times a day. Making the choice to change again and again, making the choice to go deeper into our conversion, to, to, to repent, that's, that naturally becomes the second stage of putting on Christ, which is called sanctification, the process of becoming holy, 
which is the process of learning to love God and to, and to love his commandments and to keep his commandments. We started reading Psalm 119 today, which is a very long psalm, and it's a beautiful meditation on, on how lovely the law of God is. So the primary school for, for holiness, becoming sanctified, is church, where the law is taught and God is worshipped. And then the secondary school for becoming holy is the world, where we get to rub shoulders and we get to learn to live and love especially and even the ones who hate us, not easy to do. Not not easy to become perfect that way, to love our enemies. Here's one way we can begin to do it, though, and that is we have to see ourselves at least on some level uh, uh, as deserving of judgment, right? Now, people may be judging you unfairly in the moment. They may be insulting you for unfairly in the moment. They may be falsely accusing you of something in the moment that is completely wrong, and you know it's wrong, and that makes you angry. It makes you defensive. But remember this. You're guilty of something, right? I mean, they're, they're, you're not perfect. You're not innocent. And so, so one way to handle that when it happens is to just repent and go deeper into your own conversion, and, and, and that doesn't make it easy, but it makes it possible. And that's, what, and that's what we want to do. We want to get out of the first and second group, and we want to get into that third group. Because the third group leads to glorification, which is the final stage of putting on Christ, glorification, which is the promise that we will one day be like Jesus. And we can catch a glimpse of what this is like in ourselves. Uh, we can catch a glimpse of this uh, sometimes in other people. In nature itself, we can see a a glimpse of God's glory. But we should always remember that nature, and and we are a part of nature, is what C.S. Lewis called God's first sketch. This is all, this is just a pencil drawing that we're living in right now. It's going to be turned, uh, thrown away, and the the masterpiece will one day be unveiled. And those of us who make it into that third group, not by our own efforts, but by Christ robing us in his own love and his own righteousness, we will be in that portrait. We will be in that beautiful landscape. Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but, but my words shall not pass away. So this is why the law remains so important, because it's God's word. And this is why Jesus took such pains to explain the law to us, because he, he genuinely hopes that we will want to live by it. In this life, law call, the law calls us to holiness, and it reminds us that we're not there yet. But in the next life, God's law will be so much a habit, so much a habit of our hearts, that the only word for it will be grace. Amen.